Hello, I'm Laura Ellsworth, welcoming you to Prairie Doc Radio. This is a program of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. We are here to answer your medical questions, so give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. With us today is Dr. Deb Johnston, ready to answer our medical questions. Dr. Johnston's specialty is family medicine. She works with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and volunteers as part of the Prairie Doc team of physicians. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Johnston. Good morning, Laura. It's good to be here. Great to have you. Thanks for being here. And we already have questions coming I in. I know. So that's wonderful. Keep them coming. Yeah. So we're so glad to have you here to answer those questions. If others have questions, you give us a call at 605-692-1430. Dr. Johnston, this caller was wondering, how many doctors at the Brookings Clinic can give a cortisone shot? You know, that's a really good question. I I think that uh, a fair number of the primary care people do. It's it's not something that I do, um, but a lot of my partners do. And then uh, we have a brand new orthopedic surgeon here who has just joined us, uh, starting to see patients next week. I say he's brand new. He's brand new to us. Sure. Uh, he has been in practice actually for almost as long as I have. Uh, so he is definitely well seasoned. So. Um, you know, some of the answer to that is going to depend on what joint you're talking about as well, because some joints um, are more accessible, I guess, would be the way to to um, phrase that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, Dr. Ellsworth does a lot of injections. Dr. Malmberg does a lot of injections. I believe Dr. Michelle does. Um, so there's there's a lot of people. And I think the answer is that if you think that an uh, injection might be something for you to pursue, uh, to just leave a message for your physician and see if that's something that they do or something that they'd send you to someone else for. And also know that um, an injection is not the solution to all problems. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when you go in to, to talk with a physician about um, that, be prepared that they might say, you know, I don't think this is the right choice mm-hmm. for you. So uh, it's a very common procedure, but it's not the right procedure for everyone. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that. When is a cortisone shot possibly a good option for someone? So the important thing to know about cortisone is that it uh, reduces inflammation. So uh, if you've had one before and it's been helpful, that's a good indication that it may be helpful again. But it's important to know that uh, with arthritis, for example, at a certain point, it's just not going to do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. That that joint is just past the past the point where the steroids can help, and you really have to think about something else, maybe a different type of medication as an injection, or a lot of times it's just time to get that joint replaced. Um, Sometimes there's some fancier things where they'll um, basically kind of stun the nerve that uh, 
delivers those pain messages so that it stops sending that message. Um, that's not something that gets done a whole lot because it's, again, a temporary uh, solution. And when you're at that point, you're kind of at the point where you really need that knee replacement. But there's some people who, for whatever reason, aren't uh, able or ready to go to that and uh, can get some relief otherwise. Um, sometimes if you have a lot of swelling around the joint, the um, steroid injection can mm-hmm. be helpful. Uh, usually if you have like a meniscal injury where the cartilage is torn, uh, that's actually not something that a steroid is necessarily going to be very beneficial for. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't good candidates for steroids. If, uh, For example, if the joint appears in Infected, or you can't get to it without going through infection. Um, maybe if you have poorly controlled diabetes, steroids can make your blood sugar go higher. Uh, if your immune system's not good, there's there's a lot of of um, fine points sure. to dis- to making that decision. Most people, though, it it can be an option for. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that great question. We're going to go to our first break shortly. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Did you know that breast cancer death rates have declined 40%? from 1989 to 2016 among women. The progress is attributed to the improvement in early detection. Breast cancer is most common in women, but can also be found in men. Anyone who notices changes in the breasts, such as skin texture, tenderness, lumps, or discharge, should be examined by their provider. Women are encouraged to have a mammogram every one to two years, starting at age 40. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Please talk with your provider about your breast health and other health concerns by calling the Avera Medical Group Brookings at 605-697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call with your questions at 605 605- 692-1430. Dr. Johnston, your essay this week talks about the importance of having medical research studies that include people of different ages, races, and genders. Tell us about how that has changed and evolved. So I uh, am old enough that I actually remember one of the events that uh, I talk about in the essay, the uh, 1993 um, proclamation by the FDA, the NIH, that uh, companies had to include diverse people in their research and particularly include women in their research. Um, And I remember that that was uh, quite a controversial thing at the time. I remember a lot of angst uh, at the uh, research university where I was a medical student at the time um, because of women's menstrual cycles and uh, the fluctuating hormones throughout the course of, of that month and how it 
they were so concerned that that would affect the research and make it harder to do those studies. And um, as I also say in the essay, uh, somehow those fluctuating hormones would make it too hard to do the study, but at the same time shouldn't matter in the results. So uh, that's a little bit of a, uh, a dichotomy there that I don't remember people talking much about mm -hmm. at the time, but maybe that's just a reflection of the circles that I was in. So um, in the 50s and 60s, I believe it was, there were a couple of different motion or motion morning sickness medications mm -hmm. uh, that were used and uh, DES and thalidomide and in the late 60s were so uh, people came to realize that these medications caused some pretty horrific um, long-term consequences, particularly on uh, the fetus mm -hmm. that was exposed when their mothers took the, that medication. And I think that left a lot of uh, anxiety and a lot of understandable and quite justified concern about what might happen if a fetus was exposed before they were born. Um, so in the uh, early 70s, there was a uh, proclamation that women of reproductive potential should be excluded from early stage studies, meaning that um, is this medication safe and is this medication, what is the, the likely dose, those kind of real early phase studies. Um, that proclamation did not say that women of reproductive potential should be excluded from the final stage of the study, which that stage three trials are uh, when um, an intervention is actually tested. So does this really work for what we're considering using it for? Um, but that was a subtlety that kind of frequently got neglected. So uh, even though the official proclamation was for earlier stage research, uh, women just tended to get excluded entirely mm -hmm. from studies. Um, and reproductive potential um, pretty much just ended up with all reproductive age women and, you know, while we're at it, just all women. So we really had a definite dearth of research on women and um, it, fortunately as time went by um, people pointed out you know not all reproductive age women are going to get pregnant mm -hmm. and there are highly effective forms of birth control that those women that have that potential for pregnancy uh, can be using and um, maybe we need to trust women to understand uh, how important it is not to get pregnant and take those steps. Maybe we need to have some data about uh, animal studies to say is it likely that there will be adverse fetal effects from these medications anyway? So uh, it has certainly been quite an evolution over time from um, absolute neglect mm -hmm. of women in um, these research studies. We still have a ways to go. Uh, mm -hmm. We still have not um, 
have research populations that really reflect the general population, both in uh, gender and in other um, differences. Mm-hmm. You know, the white male is still the kind of the most common individual in those studies. So uh, we've got some room to improve. Mm -hmm. What are some of the more common medical conditions that we've identified differences between men and women and the way maybe their symptoms show or they're diagnosed and treated? Uh, So I think probably the um, best example of that is heart disease. And I think that there's increasing recognition, not just in the healthcare community, but in the general population that the, you know, crushing pain behind the breastbone that maybe goes into the left arm uh, that we all are familiar with as, or hopefully familiar with as a symptom of a heart attack um, is more common in men than Mm -hmm. it is in women. Women may just be short of breath. Women may be nauseated. Women may not have the pain the way that men do. And this is not only true for women, but also people with diabetes often have altered symptoms. Um, Women don't necessarily respond um, the same to some of the treatments that we use. And women are less likely to be offered some of these treatments. So we, we definitely have, uh, have a ways to go in terms of um, making sure that men and women get the same quality mm-hmm. of care and the same efficacy of treatments offered to them. Mm-hmm. This is also true, again, for um, people of different racial backgrounds. For example, one of my favorite blood pressure medications, a class of medications called the ACE inhibitors. These are things like lisinopril and uh, Captopro is the, the original. We don't see much of that anymore because you got to dose that one several times a day. Um, is less likely to be so effective uh, to people, uh, to black Americans, um, and more likely to have side effects, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly an allergy-type side effects in black Americans. So uh, those differences do matter. We know that uh, people of Asian descent are more likely to have a a difference in the way they metabolize certain medications that make uh, those medications ill-advised for them, or at least things that need to be used with a lot more caution. Um, GD6, I think, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna mutilate it, so I'm just <laughs> not even gonna, gonna say. But anyway, um, it's important, and yeah. we need to think about it. And I often, uh, for example, recently I had a patient that I've known for a very long time in my exam room, and, and she mentioned that her daughter had gotten a, a scholarship for Indigenous individuals. <laughs> and I felt a little like I'd been hit with a hammer because it had just never occurred to me that she was Indigenous. Sure. Um, that and I, in retrospect, maybe I should have thought of that, or maybe I should have asked, um, because again, people's ethnic heritages are not necessarily visible mm-hmm. to us, mm-hmm. um, but can have implications for how medications might work for them and and um, what kinds of things they may need. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for bringing this to our attention. It is good for us to think about these things and how research is done. And um, perhaps if any of us are given an opportunity to be part of research, why it is important to participate and if it, if it works for you, if Ab- you qualify. Absolutely. Right. I think, you know, the more people and the more variety of people we have that are willing to be part of that, uh, the better it is for us as as a people. Right. The better it is for humanity, the right. more of us that are involved and yeah. the more reliable those results will be. Right. Excellent. Well, it's time for us to go to our next break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Cigarette smoking is the number one cause of lung cancer, but it can also be caused by other forms of tobacco like pipes and cigars or breathing secondhand smoke or being exposed to asbestos or radon. We also are concerned with people who have a family history of lung cancer. Lung cancer symptoms may include coughing that gets worse and doesn't go away, chest pain, shortness of breath, wheezing, and coughing up blood. Other illnesses that can cause these these symptoms should be investigated as well. If you have any symptoms, talk to your doctor. For help to quit smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit cdc.gov slash quit. Your provider at the Avera Medical Group is a good resource to discuss lung symptoms. Call 697-9500 for an appointment. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here to answer your medical questions. Give us a call with your questions at 605 692 1430. 605-692-1430. Dr. Johnston, tell us about the television show you have planned for tomorrow evening on SDPB television. I'm excited about this show. We are going to talk about uh, women's health, uh, particularly women of those reproductive ages that we were just talking about so that the show is from Menarche to menopause, so your first period to your last period. Uh, and I'm sure we'll extend that a little bit and, and talk a little bit about uh, puberty for for young women uh, and girls and into managing those menopausal uh, symptoms and, um, you know, things that we need to think about maybe more for women than we do for men all along um, and not just pregnancy and pregnancy prevention, but uh, also um, things like bone health. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's one of my um, pet topics. We know that women are more uh, prone to osteoporosis than men are, which is not to say that men are immune, um, because men certainly have fractures as well, and uh, particularly as they get into older ages, but um, it's something women have 
less bone in the first place. They have smaller bones, um, so it doesn't take as long for those bones to weaken, and uh, we lose our bone protective estrogen um, in kind of later middle age, and men tend not to lose their testosterone in the same dramatic fashion that women lose their estrogen. So um, it's a different disease Mm -hmm. for women and something that we have to be thinking a lot about. Breast cancer prevention, um, uh, breast cancer in general, just a a lot of unique things to women that it will be good to have a chance to talk about. And I'm very excited about my guests. I have not met Dr. Kelly before, but Dr. Broadwine was actually a medical student who followed me many years ago, so I'm excited to get the chance to to see her in her new, um, new-to-me uh, role as a fully minted, board-certified physician. Yeah, so that'll be Coming exciting. back around. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So, Dr. Johnson, I've heard that girls are getting their periods at an earlier age. Is that true? And what do we know about that? So we do know that puberty is starting earlier for both boys and girls. And um, the actual when the average girl gets her first period hasn't changed nearly as much, but it is a little bit earlier. And um, this is important for a few reasons. Um, You know, Although their bodies are changing, um, their brains aren't maturing any more quickly. So you will get uh, younger girls, you'll get eight, nine, ten-year-olds who are kind of facing the same social situations and expectations that maybe their mothers and grandmothers didn't face until they were um, 12 mm-hmm. or so. So uh, we see these young girls who are being put in those positions and, um, you know, uh, you always think about predators and, and people that want to take advantage of these young girls sexually, and that is certainly something that they're going to be vulnerable to in a different way than they were a generation ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And those are conversations that, as parents, we need to be having with our kids um, both about how their bodies are changing and what to expect uh, at a time when we didn't think about that a generation ago. So a lot of parents, it's a difficult conversation, difficult to know how to handle in the first place, uh, and we don't have the same, well, this is how my mother did it or mm-hmm. didn't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same age and the same what is how do you explain something to an eight-year-old that's different than explaining it to a 10-year-old? Mm-hmm. You know, 10-year-olds just have um, a different understanding, a more mature brain, more able to grasp uh, more complicated ideas. So uh, it's, it's an interesting societal challenge that we'll face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does always feel a little strange all these different conversations but thankfully we live in this uh era where we can get resources right um there are different options for different resources that work for you and your family so you can yes and it is important to um 
you know, not all resources are created equal, mm-hmm. and uh, not all resources, uh, particularly stuff out there on social media, uh, are necessarily accurate. So I would definitely recommend that uh, parents and um, really any sort of health topic that you're trying to uh, get information about, it's important that you not just start with Google mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, those algorithms may push things to the top that are not reliable. I like to recommend uh, that people start at a, a search engine called medlineplus.gov, mm. M-E-D-L-I-N-E-P-L-U-S dot gov. And this is a search engine where uh, it just goes to reliable sites. So it's not anybody with a website. It's the Mayo Clinic website, the Cleveland Clinic website, the National Institutes of Health, um, major, uh, you know, the Osteoporosis Foundation, the American Heart Association. Uh, It's going to be a website where you get you can find reliable sources to help you with those basics. And, you know, once you have an understanding of the basics, then you have a better place to judge how reliable is this of other information that you're finding. I remember as a uh, resident having a patient who was very anemic who came in and uh, she had started taking algae or some other plant thing as okay. a treatment for her um, for her anemia and she came with this link to this website this was again in the early days um, that talked about how well algae you know and chlorophyll and this was good for you because this let you make more oxygen or carry more oxygen and boy that website was very convincing Mm -hmm. and I had to take a step back and say dad people are not plants people are not algae we do not use chlorophyll in this way and someone who didn't have that knowledge about how human beings carried oxygen in their system could easily have been convinced by that website that this was the way you should treat your anemia, mm-hmm. not iron. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Well, it's time for us to go to our final break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now with your questions at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Did you know that breast cancer death rates have declined 40% from 1989 to 2016 among women? The progress is attributed to the improvement in early detection. Breast cancer is most common in women, but can also be found in men. Anyone who notices changes in the breasts, such as skin texture, tenderness, lumps, or discharge, should be examined by their provider. Women are encouraged to have a mammogram every one to two years, starting at age 40. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Please talk with your provider about your breast health and other health concerns by calling the Avera Medical Group Brookings at 605-697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Deb Johnston is here answering our medical questions. 
give us a call at 605-692-1430. Dr. Johnston, to many of us, menopause is a bit of a mystery. What do you hope we understand or learn about menopause? So I think it's important to understand that menopause when we say menopause, um, we often mean that last period, uh, which of course is something that you only know in retrospect. You don't know that this is going to be your last period until the next one doesn't come. Um, but there's a long process leading up to that for women uh, that we doctors call perimenopause when those ovaries just aren't working as well as they used to or the same way that they used to. And um, that will be often associated with those hot flashes and maybe some vaginal dryness and um, those periods getting less regular and your flow changing. And uh, it can be a pretty uncomfortable experience for a lot of women. Typically, that perimenopause lasts for about 10 years before that last period, but those menopausal symptoms can continue longer than that, and they may change. Women may have more vaginal dryness. I worry more about those bones after she's stopped having that ovarian function. Um, It is definitely a process. There's a lot of symptoms that come along with it, but not every woman is going to have all of those symptoms. Uh, Some women have very few symptoms at all. Um, They just stop having periods one day, and that's all there is to it. Other women are truly miserable, and there are options to help treat most of your symptoms. Um, but you don't necessarily have to do anything if those symptoms are not bothersome enough to you that you want to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's about time for us to wrap up today. I'm sure there's a lot more questions yeah. out there about menopause. I and hope the symptoms so, because otherwise associated. Dr. Kelly and Dr. Broadwine and I will just be kind of staring at each other saying, well, what do you want to talk about? Right. So please, right. Tune give in. us some questions. Yeah, so tune into the television program tomorrow night to dive more into those. So before we go, that's on South Dakota Public Broadcasting Television and the Prairie Doc Facebook page for On Call with the Prairie Doc most Thursdays starting at 7 p.m. Central. Join us this coming Thursday for a new live On Call with the Prairie Doc. Prairie Doc host Dr. Deborah Johnston will be joined by Dr. Amy Kelly from Sanford Obstetrics and Gynecology Clinic and Dr. Dominique Broadwine from Avera Medical Group Family Health Center as they talk with us about puberty through menopause. We hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc on KBRK brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube. For free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library, visit www.prairiedoc.org. And look for Prairie Doc wherever you find your podcast. My thanks to Dr. Deb Johnston for joining us today. And as Dr. Holm would say, stay healthy out there, people. <laughs>